right, this is our second study in the uh, book of John. And last week, if you were with us, you know that we established John's purpose, which he gives us clearly in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's good to know an author's purpose for what he is writing because ultimately everything goes back to that purpose. There may be things that we look at that are in the contents of a book like this and wonder how it points to that, but if we look closely enough, we'll see how that's his purpose. It's going right back there again and again and again. Um, last week, we saw that the gospel was broken up in six ways, and you have those on that outline I gave you. And we looked at pretty closely at the first 18 verses of chapter 1, the prologue. And the reason we did that was because it really does set the themes in place, which John is then going to work through in the rest of the book. So we're going to see those same themes repeated over and over again. And then uh, the second part of the book, verses 119 through 1250, which is in some ways the heart of the book, are what they call a book of signs. John selectively chooses seven signs that he brings forth to um, prove his point that Jesus is indeed the Christ. He is the Son of God. And he presents those as an apologetic. He presents those evangelistically, that those who are outside of Christ might know who he is. These prove his words, they validate his words, and they also um, show us that he is the Son of God, trusting that they are convincing enough to believe for someone to, to set their faith in Christ. He also has a purpose of coming and encouraging us in our faith. And that is, we all waver in our faith. We're going to see that as we look at the upper room discourse. Jesus is leaving over and over again in his exhortations to the disciples. It's to not fall away. It's to remain in the vine. It's to, to continue to believe, even though their whole world is going to be turned upside down. And there's a second part of that, which is the other major part of that upper room discourse. And that isn't not only just continuing the faith, but it's to keep from squabbling among yourselves. He over and over again says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And one of my major commandments is you would love one another. And he reiterates that over and over and over again in that upper room discourse. And so that's um, chapter 13, verse 1 through 17, 26. Then in the fourth part of the book, we have the arrest, trials, crucifixion, and resurrection. And that's uh, really 18.1 through 20.31. And then finally, there's a, almost like an addendum where he clears up a few items in chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. So I'm going to begin to look tonight at that book of signs. And we're going to spend a lot of our time there because John labored over those. He selectively chose seven. Why seven? 
You know, some people have tried to say, well, seven's such a biblical number, but there's really eight signs, and the final one is Jesus' own resurrection, which John calls a sign. But it's the final capstone sign. So I don't make too much of the number, but I think he's basically saying, if you don't believe based on these signs, then you're not going to believe. It doesn't matter what kind of proof we truck out. It doesn't matter what kind of things happen. You're, it, you're just, at this point, not able to believe, and you're not going to believe. So um, when I was young, the title song of a, a very popular uh, rock opera of our youth, one that actually played a part in my wife coming to Christ, was Jesus Christ Superstar. Now, I'm not asking you to go out and rent a copy of that on Netflix. You know, it's blasphemous in many ways. But to a non-believer, which she was, it was the first thing that made her think, if they invested this many millions in this kind of a film, maybe this guy really was a real person. That was the first time Sherry had ever thought that Jesus was actually real. But in the chorus of that, it says, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who are you? What have you sacrificed? Jesus Christ, superstar, do you think you're what they say you are? And there's a question in that, and it really comes down again to John's whole purpose for his book to show you that Jesus is not just a man. He's greater than a prophet. He is indeed the Son of God, very God of very God. And so what we want to do tonight is to look at um, some of the proofs that John brings forth. And so if you'll turn in your, your uh, Bibles, and we're going to look again just really quickly at chapter 1, not go through, I'm not going to do a review, but I want to show you something that I saw this last week, actually through James and Montgomery Boyce and his commentary, that I thought was really amazing. There's so much symbolism in the book of John, and there's so many things, there's so many themes that he weaves together throughout that book that if we trace through any one of those, if we go through the word believe, 78 times it's used in the gospel. 78 times it's used in a verbal form, never once used in a noun form, which John then equates that belief is shown in action. There is fruit that comes forth from believing. And, um, you know, so there's many symbols, there's many ways to go through that. But one of the things that he brings out in chapter one that I had not seen are the progression of names as he's unveiling who Jesus is in the prologue and the rest of chapter one. So if you have your Bibles open to John one, looking at verses one and two and 14, could I get somebody to read those? Who's got that open to uh, chapter one? Gary, would you read one and, one and two and 14? One and two, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so he's the Word, and we talked about what the Word meant, and that's an example or picture of, of Christ as the what the Greeks called this force in the world that they couldn't explain, that brought everything into being, that the Jews knew was the spoken Word of God, the fullest expression of God. He's appealing to both the Jewish audience and the Greek audience, and so the first a thing that we get is this word and we see that the word was then in flesh that's verse 14 full of grace and truth then verses um, 4 and 5 of chapter 1 Sherry do you have that there 
In him was life, the life was the light of man, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay, this is a universal picture of illumination through revelation. We use the expression contemporarily that um, the light finally came on. Or we talk about somebody that's not getting in. We say the lights are on, but nobody's at home. You know, we have this idea of light giving illumination to things that are, that are happening. And John says Jesus is the light. He's the one who brings the final revelation of Christ to mankind. And he's the only one who can. He has to open the eyes, as we see as we go through the gospel, of men spiritually. He's the one who gives them light, life. That's another synonym that goes along with this. But uh, that expression of light is the first expression that God gave to anything. God spoke and said, let there be light. Takes us back to Genesis. He is that light manifested. And so we see a second name, a second appellation given to him. And so we have a progression of understanding who he is. He is the word and he is the light. The next one is really um, found in the Lamb of God, uh, verses 29 and 36. Ed, do you have that? Chapter 1, 29 and 36. Oh, you're doing it on your phone. Is that too hard for you? Yeah, my tablet died. Oh, did Okay. 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What was the next one? 36. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Okay, so there we have a title that wouldn't have meant a lot to the Greeks, except that they were exposed maybe to the Jewish culture, but it would have meant a wealth of things to the, to the Jews. Their whole life was built around sacrifice in the temple and the sacrificial system. They knew what it was to sacrifice the lambs at Passover, their greatest festival every year, commemorating not only what had happened in the past, but also a precursor to the fact that God was going to finally eradicate sin through a lamb. And they hadn't put that together with the fact that the, the very God who would come down to be incarnate would become that lamb. But they understood that word, and so we see here a focus not on just illumination, but a focus on sacrifice. And Jesus is going to become that, that sacrifice. And then we have verses 34 and 49. Just read 34. Nick, you have that? If you don't, don't just, I'll get somebody else. 134? 134, yeah. Uh, I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Okay, and, and 49, can you quickly get that one? 49. Uh, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Okay. The Son of God means that um, this person has a, a special relationship with God. John's going to draw that out as he goes through the rest of the gospel. But it, it, it means, um, we, he's also called the only begotten, it means a singularly unique Son of God. Not, he's already gone through in, his, in the prologue, and he's shown us that this isn't a created being. He was in the 
the beginning with God. He was God. And now he's called the son of God. It's a role that Jesus had had from the time when all things began from as part of the Trinity. He was anticipating his role to come down and present man and to be fully man on the earth. But it was uh, it's also his his position of unique authority and divinity. Um, the, so we see a, another progression, another facet of, of Christ and who he is through that name. Then in 138, um, Mike, you have that? Yeah, 138. Yeah. Jesus turned and saw them going and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Okay, a rabbi was a respected term, and um, it identifies, John uses to identify Jesus as the one who reveals who Christ is. He is, calls Nicodemus in chapter 3, the teacher of Israel, but here's one who is a greater teacher, and he is going to not only speak about what has been revealed, he is going to reveal fuller truth to everyone. And he, so he takes the place of the ultimate teacher, the ultimate instructor of who God is. And that's, that's a, another name that's given to him. Then in 141, Allie, do you have that? Yeah. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Okay. Messiah to the Jew, again to the Greek, it wouldn't have meant as much, but to the Jew, this is the one they were waiting for. He's the deliverer. He's the one who's going to finally exalt and put Israel back on top. They saw it as an earthly kingdom, but it has far more meaning because it's the one who is going to um, introduce people to the whole kingdom of God, which is going to be an eternal kingdom. And he is the Messiah who's going to do that, but it points to the special relationship that he has. He's the sum of the whole hope for lost mankind. And that's what the Messiah was supposed to be, not just for the Jews. They perverted that. But even from the beginning, he was to be for the whole world, all mankind. And then lastly, uh, verse 151. Uh, Jordan, is that your name? Morgan. Morgan. I'm, uh, sorry, Morgan. 51? Yeah. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, that takes men back to the prophetic title most prominently found in Daniel. We read in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, one like the Son of Man, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Obviously, it has overtones that are going beyond any human being. It goes to deity. And it, it points out that he is going to be the one who is the greater son of David who was promised. And if you read through the promises to David that his, his son would reign on the throne of Israel forever, that couldn't have been Solomon. He failed to live up to that. It couldn't have been any of the succeeding kings. It's tied back to that name Messiah. Messiah is going to do that. And how does he do it? He does it because he is divine. And so John is using it. And I just thought it's interesting just to grab the names and see how they, they fill in some of the details and accomplish John's purpose to show us that Jesus is the Christ and that we might believe on his name. 
Okay, so having looked at that, if you'll turn over to chapter four, or excuse me, chapter two, we're gonna start going through the book of signs. I'm gonna skip a lot of stuff here. I picked and chose what I'm gonna present to you. What I'm trying to do is say, if you're hungry for more, John is definitely worth spending time in. <laughs> okay, um, so chapter 119 through 1250 is called the Book of Signs. John brings these signs. What, what does a sign mean? Yeah, we've talked about this before, but why does he use this word signs? He never used the word miracle. He never used the word, uh, one of those other synonyms. He uses consistently, and this sign, this sign. What is, what is a sign, biblically? Uh, something that indicates something or that teaches something? Yes. A sign is like um, you go out and you'll run into a... Um, a a place down here in Greeley and there will be a sign up there that says one way. It's something that points beyond itself. Itself has meaning, but it tells you, it gives you direction. And every, all these signs have meaning in themselves. They're full of symbolism. They're full of, of uh, uh, things we can pull out of them. We, we look at the feeding of the 5,000 and we look at this little boy. I don't know where Andrew got a hold of this little boy, but he has five loaves, five barley loaves, and there's, there's stuff we can pull out of barley. Barley was not considered human food. It was really fed for, for the animals. It was a very poor type of food. And, and we can pull things out of that, but it's a reality, and it's a part of the sign, but the sign points to a greater reality. Jesus gave them food until they were ate all they wanted and then they picked up 12 baskets full what is the purpose of that it means that the bread that god gives the life that he gives is eternal it'll never run out and we can look at the individual pieces of that and pull things out of them which are good for our edification but each one of these signs points to a greater reality this truth shows Jesus like the one where you're, he's tearing the bread and so forth. That's an act of creation. It takes us back in the Old Testament to the time of Moses. It takes us back to when the manna appeared. How many Israelites sat at the, the front of their tents and looked out into the wilderness and just waited to see how the manna came? I would have done that. I would have been out there going, you know, maybe I'd have gone out and sat in, in a place where I picked up manna yesterday and I would have sat and said, oh, maybe manna will fall on me. I don't know. How does this, how does this take place? You know, but um, it, it takes us back to that great miracle where God preserved his people for 40 years, even in their sin, which has a whole lot to speak to us about. But it takes us back to Jesus is saying, I am the one who's going to provide to you, not this bread, which will keep your body sustained for another day. I'm going to give you that which will sustain your spiritual life forever and ever. And we pull out those things, each one of those a sign, looking beyond the actual things that took place. They were real and meaningful but to the greater reality. And that's what John wants to bring out. So we're going to look at each one of these signs. I'm going to have you read a little bit. And I'm going to try to move through this. If I don't get where I think I'm going to go tonight, that is not unusual if you're aware of who I am. <laughs> so be patient with me and I'll be patient with you. But I want us to pull out certain things. I want us to see if we can discern why this sign was given. 
I want us to see if we can discern what it tells us about Christ. I want to see if we can discern um, what the effect of the sign was. Because oftentimes that's easily to see. So let's look at the first sign. It begins in a strange place. It's a wedding at Cain of Galilee. Um, can I get somebody to read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11? On the third day, <clears throat> there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, <clears throat> Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for, so, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept a good wine until now. This is the first of, this, of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay. <clears throat> Interesting beginning to his ministry. You know, none of the other disciples uh, in the synoptics bring out this particular incident. It seems to be almost too, can I say, trite, you know, for Jesus to begin this stupendous ministry at a, a simple wedding in a place called Cana of Galilee, which we don't even know where it is anymore. We think we have an idea, but we're not even sure because it was so insignificant as a city. But... Um, you know, he, we wonder why, why this, why this miracle? What is the dynamic that's taking place there? And so, but it's the first of his miracles. This kicks it all off. What are symptoms uh, that we see in there that this is the beginning of it all? Is there there's something in the dialogue that tells us beyond the fact that in chapter, verse 11 it says this is the beginning? Is there something else that might tell you that this is the beginning in that dialogue? Jesus responds to his mother and says, my time has not yet come. Yeah. That, that portends that his time has just now come. Yeah. The fact that he said that is like, yeah. you're wondering. And that brings out a lot of interesting things. We say, if, if um, my mom came up to me and she said, um, we had guests over and so forth, and she said, the sandwiches are ready. And if I looked at her and said, woman, what does that have to do with me? You guys would think, whoa, I better take him aside and tell him he's not treating his mother with any respect. And so we read that through our modern eyes, but Jesus isn't doing that at all. Woman wasn't a disrespectful title, but it was a distancing. It was a, a word that was used that put some distance between him and her. Why, why might he have used that phrase at this, the thing that's going to kick off his ministry? He is the Savior. He's the Son of God. 
no longer is he to be declared Mary's son. Yes. He's the son of God now. Yeah. And if she's asking for a miracle, then know this, Mary, I'm the son of God now. I'm no longer your son. Yeah. And he's also sort of saying to her, I'm, this is Lee Barton here, but he's sort of saying to her, do you realize what this means? Yes. This is a step on a path that is irrevocable. And so Jesus is going to begin that path that's going to lead to the cross and then to the resurrection. And he's very aware of that in there. Now, somewhere in that communication, we're not told with John, but Jesus must have said, this is the Father at work. This is where the Father wants me to go. And he steps over that line. But he is putting distance between her. He's saying, every other human being needs a Savior. You need one also. Mm -hmm. And he is, John is purposely helping us there so that there isn't this veneration of Mary. And Mary is also helping us out by telling those servants, you do what he says because now she knows he's taken that step. Yeah. Do they fully realize all this? We aren't sure. Uh, Jesus does. Let's give him credit. But, you know, we don't think Mary realized all this, but Mary knows there's a dynamic here. Something is changing and she's aware of it. And being the person she is, she is putting herself under her son, which she probably has done anyway, because John or Joseph is dead. Okay. So there's, there's a dynamic that's taking place here. Now, why this miracle? Why this one of, of uh, turning the water into wine at this wedding? Does that, is there anything we should we gather from the material that we've read in those 11 verses? I think we need to... Wait, Dad, Gary, I'm, I'm going to stop you. You're, you're good I and you're helping me a lot. But I want to broaden this out a little bit, okay? I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I do think it's interesting that it's water into wine. And okay. then later, wine represents the blood of uh -huh. Jesus. And so it's kind of setting the stage of it's purification jars that are used for purifying ritual that have water in them. That he is taking that and saying, you used to use these to purify yourself, but they're going to be of no use to you. Good. I'm coming and I'm the blood. And yeah. that will be shed. So this is kind of setting that stage of moving beyond what they used to have to do. Excellent, Amy. You have to be washed in the blood. You know, the, that sounds gross to us. I mean, which one of us goes out and slaughters, a, uh, you know, an animal and then he goes, oh, man, I can finally get clean here. You know, we don't think of it that way, but it, it's without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It, that's how we're, we're cleansed internally, and it does point to that. It also points to something else. He turned the water into wine and whether we like it or not in our evangelical circles um, wine was a symbol of gladness of heart it was a symbol of joy and so uh, the rabbi said without wine there is no joy Psalm 104 5 praise the Lord for giving wine that gladdens the heart of man Isaiah 55 1 and speaking of our Lord's invitation to salvation says come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. I know that there's alcoholism. There wasn't Jesus's day. I know that this can be a deadly drink and all that stuff. So I'm not promoting going out and drinking. I'm not trying to do that, but it was associated with joy. The water pots were filled with water for what purpose? 
be changed to wine. No, that's part of it, Larry, but what else? What, what's that? Strictly purification, just, just to just Yeah, purification, the ritual of purification. And the Jews are so fastidious about that. Your disciples are eating without having washed their hands. We, you know, they're unclean. You know, there was all that kind of stuff that was going on. So at a wedding, of course, you're going to provide water for all the guests to wash before they eat and things like that. But it's the water of, of purification. And that was a particularly Jewish thing. You know, the, the Romans are more like you and I. We come in, we've been working on the car, we wipe things off on our wife's dish towel and we, we sit down and make ourselves a sandwich. You know, we, uh, you guys don't do that? <laughs> the women go, no, we would never do that. But you know, we, we, we're not nearly so careful about it because to us it's not a religious issue. For them it had, the water pots were empty. And what it symbolizes is that the joy that was supposed to be associated with the worship of Yahweh had dried up. It was no longer working. Judaism had become a burdensome series of, of laws and commandments that people had to keep. And it was empty and meaningless. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to take your symbol. I'm going to fill it with a new understanding. And I'm going to bring the joy back. And that's what all this is about at a wedding. It's, it's a celebration. And Jesus is announcing his beginning of ministry through celebration. And he provides six stone water pots between 80 and 120 gallons of wine. <laughs> Do you think Jesus did that much because he was going, okay, folks, we know you can't enjoy yourself unless you're blasted. <laughs> Go get drunk. Do you think that's what he was doing? No. Why such an abundance? They could never have drunk at all. Always above and beyond. Yes, because the joy that Jesus intends to give us has no end. You cannot exhaust it. But beyond that, and I think this is so interesting, the guests drink 40 gallons, let's say, or 50 gallons of wine. That, or let's say they drink 100 gallons of wine. And this is, remember, the best wine. That leaves 80 gallons for this young couple to sell to have money for their wedding. Not just their wedding, but for their lives. Jesus is very cognizant of providing all of that, both the symbolic and the other. And it's an amazing thing. And then lastly, we wanted to look at what were the, um, uh, what was the result of that, that particular sign? Belief. Belief. By who? Disciples, for sure. Yes. By the disciples, for sure. And that's who John focuses on. This is the beginning of a glimmer that they have. They've already noted, Andrew said, we found the Messiah to Peter and, and so forth. But this is a confirmatory thing. This guy we're following is no ordinary man. There's a development of faith going on here. They saw the miracle because it was really a very private miracle. Jesus told them, fill them with water pots. Now take some out and go give it. He didn't say, it's now wine. Take some out. None of that stuff. It's, a, it's a, a miracle that causes men to have to discover it and to chew on it a bit and ponder that. And that's what Jesus often does 
when he's working in a life. He causes us to begin to see some things and to chew on those. And therein lies choices. Their choice was belief. Is it saving faith yet? I don't think so. But it's belief that this is more, this guy is at least a great prophet. At least, you know, we might say. So that's that first sign, and um, it's a, there's a lot more we could go into there, but, but this is, it's, John loves the symbolism of all these things, and he pulls it in. So any questions, any comments before we move on out of that? Yes? Well, um, I don't remember which gospel it's in where he, you, he says the bridegroom, while the bridegroom is with you, you right. celebrate or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he's also doing it at a wedding right. and say, announcing you know, I'm the bridegroom. <laughs> right. Um, I, I don't know. I think that's yeah, no, I, I think that's a fair analogy, you know, that he does use that symbolism later on. <laughs> and maybe that called him back to this this uh, celebration and everything else. So, so that's good. Thank you for adding that. Any other comments? I think it's interesting, and I don't know how to tie it all together, but the Bible begins with, a, like, in a sense of the first marriage. And then at the end of the Bible, we see that it concludes with a grand marriage yeah. of the lamb and his wife. And then here Jesus begins his ministry with that. Yeah, great. I hadn't seen that and hadn't thought about it. That's great. So, we, yeah, Adam and Eve got married just because they didn't have a judge. And so for that, God, God said, you're for him and he's for her. You know, you're for her and so forth. And that's great. And then all the way through it. And we are the bride of Christ. Uh, some of us men go, I don't know, I've never been a bride and I never wanted to be. <laughs> it's a little different than that. Okay. All right, let's go to the second sign. Uh, John 4. John 4. 46 through 54. All right. Kate, Doni, would you read that for us? John 4, 46, 46 through 54. If you're uncomfortable, just tell me. I'm not uncomfortable, but my voice sounds kind of funny, so. Okay, well, so does mine. So he came to Cana in Galilee, where he made the water and wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them at the he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all the household. This was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Okay, so we had a pretty private sign um, with a probably pretty poor group of people. Cana Galilee wasn't a rich metropolis. Um, you know, the, the couple had provided for what they thought would be adequate for the guests. Obviously, it hadn't been enough. They ran out of wine. So you, you got a pretty poor setting in here. And in contrast to that, we've got this guy who's fairly rich. A couple things are interesting, just to set it in place. I call this miracle from foxhole to faith. 
You know, I got a guy here, and, and he's, where, where is this miracle taking place again? Yeah. Canaan. Canaan, Galilee. Now, John doesn't do things accidentally. He's pulling us back into Cana, same place, and he's trying to show us a second sign, and he's wanting us to do a little bit of comparison between these two signs because they're taking place in the, the same place. We don't know who this official is. He could have been uh, Chusa who was a servant to Herod. You know, some people think he was, that uh, his wife, who was, had been at that wedding in Cana, the word had spread that Jesus had done all this so, and so forth. But anyway, this guy hears that Jesus is back in Cana, and he comes. Um, both of the signs contain an initial rebuke, in a sense. Woman, what does that have to do with me? You know, and in this one, unless you people believe, or unless you see signs, you will never believe. There's an initial pushback to a person coming and requesting some, something from Jesus. Why might that be? Why might John bring that out? Why might Jesus have that reaction? In the first one, we have a good idea that he knows it's a step he's going to have to take. What about this one? Why might he be pushing back at this guy? What Jesus said was true. Okay. I mean, unless they see a sign, they are going to believe. He's, you know, that's, that's the absolute truth. But in his mercy, he still showed the sign. Okay. Good, good. I'm, I'm looking at a little thread that's a little different than that, but that's definitely there. So that's good. Somebody else? Anybody, any thoughts? Maybe. Sorry, go ahead. Go, go for it. Please. Is he still pointing them to the fact that he's God in the sense that there have been other prophets that have done things, but he's trying to bring them back to what the Old Testament was talking about, the mm -hmm. signs and everything, mm -hmm. and reminding them, like, hey, it said... You were going to need signs and wonders to believe, and now I'm performing signs and wonders. Okay. So he's kind of reminding them in a way, too. Yeah, I, I think you're on to it. In my mind, from what I gleaned as I read and, and, and have chewed this over a little bit, what Jesus is saying here is that I'm not a circus performer. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just <coughs> dance up to me and say, hey, big boy, I have a need. In that um, Jesus Christ Superstar, there's a place where Herod sings a song and he goes, you know, to Jesus, he goes, turn my water into wine. You know, Herod wanted to see some sign from him and Jesus wouldn't give that. And Jesus is saying to them, don't come to me just for the signs. Don't come to me just for the miracles. I am more than that. I'm not just a provider for your temporal needs right now. Also, as we saw in the first sign, in the second sign, we're seeing Jesus demanding some faith on the part of the people. We didn't bring it out in the first one, but fill the water jars. And so the servants fill the water jar, dip some out, take it to the master of the feast. If I'd have been the servant, I would have looked at it and said, okay, I'll be thirsty, you know, because it's just water. That's what I would have been thinking. And, uh, and somewhere in there, people have to respond. Remember in John, faith is always demonstrated through action. And Jesus is telling this official, you think that you're 
coming to me in a proper way, asking for me to do this thing for you. You have faith that I could heal your son, but is it real faith or is it just a great desire in your part? How many people have you shared Christ with who wanted to get their marriage fixed? Wanted to know how to, to be a better father or mother? Um, wanted to, to get out of this situation or that and they're desperate and they're open to you sharing about your faith. But the minute the problem's solved, away they go. And a lot of times, I think we're at fault. I think we leap on that and we express and explain things to them, but we're solving their problem, not leading them to Christ. And so Jesus is, is giving, I believe, some, some pushback here. Um, one other difference I think is interesting in the comparison of these. The first miracle was an occasion of joy and celebration. The second miracle is fraught with desperation and fear. So what does that tell us about Jesus and his character? Any thoughts? Ed? That he does both uh, for joy and if you have problems. Yeah. Jesus wants to be Lord of all of life. And you're going to have problems. If you haven't got any now, you know, Come to me, I can give you some mind you can borrow. But, you know, we're, we're going to have problems. All of life is those ups and downs. We can have supreme joy and, and so forth. We can have times of great trouble. And Jesus is saying, I'm master of it all. I can make your celebration something that nobody will ever forget. I can also help you in the midst of your great trial. Now, in this one, he's going to do a miracle because that's necessary for, for the things that are done. But, uh, you know, the things that he wants to reveal. But he doesn't always do miracles, you know. So, and the other contrast is, again, this is a rich man. And Jesus isn't saying, I divide people up into poor and to rich. I've read books where people say that, you know, you should only work with the poor, that, you know, that, that unless your ministry is including only the poor and that's your focus, you're really not following in Jesus' steps. Well, the gospel came for all of us, whether we're rich, poor, or, or uh, intelligent, or, or simple, whatever it is, it's, it's for everybody. Now, what's the reaction of the official? What does the official do? Responds in faith. He obeys. Yes. <clears throat> this is a very interesting thing because the story, as you read through it, this official has come to Jesus in this late in the day. He's come from a distance, and the official turns away, but he doesn't go home. From everything that I've read, they think he probably spent the night there near Canaan. You know, maybe in Nazareth or something, uh, partway on the journey home. But there's something that's trans taken place in the official. The official has believed. He's taken Jesus' rebuke. He's asking him to come down. Jesus has simply told him, go. Your, 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 uh, your son lives. And, and he has responded. And his faith is rewarded when? Next day. The next day. He's on his way. The servants come and meet him. They tell him, be at ease. Your son has been, you know, cured. He's healed and so forth. And he says, when did this take place? And they happen to have noticed under the auspices of the Holy Spirit the exact time that this took place. 
And the official knows that that's exactly when he was talking to Jesus at that seventh hour. And so his faith is confirmed. But what took place first? He turned and went and obeyed. All through John's gospel, obedience is tied to blessing. If we obey, God will bless. You want to stay in fellowship with him, John 15. You want to abide in the vine, you obey his commandments. What's one of his great commandments? To love the brethren, to, to love one another. And he ties these things in over and over again. The faith has to be demonstrated. And the result, he himself believed and his whole household. Not an unusual thing. The master has become a Christian and we will follow in his faith. And so knowledge is transferred, all these other things, and the whole family, you know, the whole group believed, and there's a worship of Jesus that begins to take place there. So, so you can see how these signs are intricate, and uh, there's so much in them. And I can see by our time, we're never going to get where I thought we were going to go. But I'm, you know, I just commend to you. I, I hate to do this, but I'm going to have to quit the signs. I, I can't go through them all. If I do, then we'll never get to the last part of the book. Is that okay? There's always next week. No, there's not next week. <laughs> there's no, today is the day we have. <laughs> and as much as I would love to do this, but my, my tendency is, is, and that's my tendency, I, I get into the details because they're so rich. And this book is a rich book. It's just so full of so many things. The other signs, though, just so you are aware of them, are um, the healing of the crippled man. Just a couple of things I want to point out about that. That's in John chapter 5, the first 10 verses. But it really takes the whole of that. And here's a man who's been 38 years ill. Jesus comes by himself. Nobody seems to be with him. He walks into the midst of this group of people who are labeled as blind, lame, and withered. And there's symbolism and all that. Um, you know, they're blind. They can't see the kingdom of God because they're not born again. They're lame. No one can come to Christ unless the Spirit draws him, John 6, uh, 44. They're withered. They're paralyzed. You know, they haven't got the ability to reach out to him. This whole miracle is Jesus taking the initiative. And that's what happens in salvation. Jesus takes the initiative. He walks into the midst of hopelessness and despair where lives are completely spent on an absolutely empty thing that cannot ever bring them to, to healing or salvation. And in the midst of that, despite all of that, he just picks a man and he heals him. 38 years, a lame person. The interesting thing is, in contrast to the miracles before this, this man doesn't seem to believe. He is healed. Jesus finds him later on in the temple where a healed man might go for cleansing and so forth. But, you know, this man goes to the Jews because the Jews are wanting to know who healed you on the Sabbath, tells them it's Jesus. The indications are blessed by God, touched in a miraculous way, without faith. <clears throat> he never believes. That's the implication of that. Now that points to the fact that the gospel goes out to everybody. It is The blessings of God are announced to the world. 
men can see all that God is and all that he does and they will never come to faith. And we see that over and over again as we see some sliding this way and some sliding that way. So that, that's uh, the fourth or the third miracle. The fourth one is the, the feeding of the 5,000, which is a miracle of creation. It's um, probably not 5,000. Some estimate that it was between 10 and 20,000 with the, the women and children. A couple things I would point out. I said the barley loaves were not you know, food that you normally fed. They were for the poorest of poor people. And sometimes God will answer a prayer and bless us, but he doesn't bless us the way we want to be blessed, you know? He gives us a Yugo instead of a Cadillac, but he still provided a Yugo, and we fail to be grateful for the Yugo, you know? It's just a small little point that, that sort of struck me in this whole thing. Jesus uses means. He involves his disciples in this because he wants them to see, once again, his provision. The purpose of gathering up the 12 baskets at the end of this was not so that, that uh, they didn't waste the resources. That may have been a tiny part of it, but it was so they could marvel all these people ate until they had more than enough and there's still this left over. And Jesus is again pointing, I am the bread of life. This is tied to that I am statement. And it means that when I provide, it is abundant and it is eternal. And I will continue to provide that. And so, who believes after that? We have a contrast. The disciples see the miracle. They understand this is a great man. But the crowds follow Jesus. Why? Because they're going, you're the Messiah? No. We want our lunch. We yeah. want lunch. Yeah. You know? That lunch you gave us yesterday was great. Why don't you do that all the time? In fact, didn't Moses provide manna in the wilderness for 40 years? Why don't you come be our king? You can provide bread for us and we never have to work again. You know? And that is so like us. Give me the gift. You know? Oh, strength attached? Belief? Nah, nah. Let's get off of that. You know? You know, the people saw this sign, which he had performed. And this is important. This is uh, verse uh, 614. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, truly, this is a prophet who has come into the world, the prophet who has come into the world. That statement leads us into sign number five, which is walking on water. Okay? And that's found in... Um, um, Chapter six, six where, I didn't even write it down. <coughs> anyway, the sign of walking on water. This is, a, again, a very simple sign. It's a very private sign. Who is out in the middle of that lake? Just the disciples. Now, Jesus sends them off. John doesn't tell us that, but the other gospels do. He goes up to the mountain. He dismisses the crowds. He goes up to pray. They're trying to row across because he told them he wanted them to. They don't know how he's going to get there, but they're manfully at the oars. And the winds are contrary. A storm is taking place. And Jesus comes walking out into the middle of the lake. Tell me, just with that little bit of information, what does that tell you about Christ? What does that tell you about his deity? No one walks on water. He's got to be God. Okay, nobody walks on water. And I thought of something else. Nobody walks on water in the midst of a storm. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he's got to be God. Later, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. And so 
who, wait a minute, who listens to the, who can command the weather? Right. So, so all that's involved. And then there's this little thing that we don't think about. How did Jesus know where they were? <laughs> you can't see him out on a lake. That's omniscience, folks. I know where you are. I know where you all are all the time. You're out there and you're in trouble and you're desperate and you're mad at Jesus because he's put you in this situation, making you row across this lake. You may even be in danger and you think, if only he knew. If only he knew what was going on down here. He knew exactly what was going on. He walked out right to them, intending to pass by. You guys look like you're doing fine. You know why he was going to pass by? Because they're still dependent on themselves. He wants them to see he is more than a prophet, as the people saw after that last sign. He is God himself. And that's a private sign for them. Don't think that I'm just a prophet. You guys think we've made great strides in my ministry because they're calling me the prophet who is expected. That's not good enough. Just like Travis was talking about on Sunday. I'm God. I'm no less than that, and I will accept no worship that is less than that which is directed towards God. You know? So it's a private sign to them to get their eyes off of the earthly goals that they might have acquired after feeding the, the 5,000 to get them back on God's track. We're on God's track here, not on the people's agenda. Questions, thoughts, comments? Okay. Moving right along. I said I wasn't going to do this, but I can't avoid it. The sixth sign is the man born blind. Now, this is a fascinating story because each one of these is taking two chapters, really. Um, it, it's a story of a man who's what? What do we know about this story? Tell me a little bit about it. Wes, tell me a little bit about this story. Man born blind? Yeah, John chapter 9. Don't tell me if, you don't, if you're not comfortable. I have a way of just doing that. Not the very well. Okay, that's fine. Anyway, tell me about this, this Gary. Well, one of the things was is that uh, it assumed that if he was born blind, then somebody in his family sinned, because that was one of the questions: who sinned, this man or his parents? Yeah. And so there we were immediately faced with a, a difficult question that people ask all the time: Are you telling me that Jesus left this man, he made him be born blind, and left him in this condition all those years so that just one day he could open his eyes? to show who he is. That's not very fair. Well, you don't have a, a kingdom perspective. That's right. Of course it's fair. He created the man, and he created him for his glory. And this guy, as we go through the story, glorifies him in a way they would never have done had he been born sighted. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a fascinating story, but we gotta get out of the way of God's sovereignty and let him be sovereign. Your life is gonna have troubles. And you don't know what those troubles have come into your life for other than that you're supposed to glorify God. So in the midst of those trials, can you adopt the posture that this too is for God's glory and rest in that and go through it with an attitude of praise and an attitude of trust? That's what this story is really all about. And there's a great contrast in the story between who? The man born blind, yeah. and who else? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. Yeah. Here's a guy born blind. 
Now Jesus stoops and he, he makes mud with his spit, which the Pharisees had a, a rule against that. If you spit and you spit into the dust and it made a little furrow, you were plowing. And therefore spitting was work. But if you spit on a rock, no furrow was evident, and so that wasn't work. That's how ridiculous the binding of this whole thing was. And, you can't, and that was on a Sabbath, you can't work on the Sabbath. That, that's the whole point. Yeah, and you cannot heal on the Sabbath unless a life is at stake. This man's been blind a long time, so just leave him blind one more day. Why do you have to violate the Sabbath? And what they did was they did what they do so often. They could not see the incredible God behind the miracle of relief of this man's trouble on a Sabbath because of the desire to keep their picky and the little rule. But their picky and the little rules, let's face it, kept them in power. And that's all it was about for them. You know? And what we see is this man. When we first see him, they ask him, who did this to you? And he goes, I don't know. Why did he know? I've never seen him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? He had no clue who had done this to him. He just knew a guy spit, made mud, and, and put it on my eyes, and in a way I went, why did Jesus do that particular way? That's a whole bunch of symbolism we don't have time to get into. But as we watch, the man doesn't know who Jesus is. The Pharisees denounce Jesus for what he's done, ask the guy to denounce Jesus too, and, Jesus, and he says, well, this is a strange thing. Since the beginning of time, it's never been known that a man born blind was relieved of his blindness. We know that God doesn't listen to anyone unless he's of God, and this guy, you know, has to be of God. And they cast him out of the synagogue. So here's this blind man enlightening the teachers of Israel. What an incredible contrast. Why is he enlightening them? Because Jesus comes to him a little later and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, who is he, Lord, that I might believe? You, he, he who is talking to you, whom you hear and whom you see, is he. And what was the man's reaction? He fell down and he worshiped. He came all the way to faith. His enlightenment was a rebuke to the blind Pharisees. And the last part of that was the Pharisees saying, so you're saying that we're in our sin? And Jesus says, because you say that you see, you remain blind and in your sins, because you do not see. That whole contrast is set up there. And he's the one, the lesson for us is he's the one who comes in and enlightens us soul. It isn't all at once. Was this a process in this man's life? First, he had to obey. First of all, he had to let somebody put mud on his eyes made out of spit, which had to be joyful. Then he had to stagger off on his own somehow to get to this pool. Then he had to wash his eyes. Then he was healed. So we see obedience to the very things that Christ gave him to do. And then we see the dawning and the gradual coming to faith. For some people, it seems like it's instantaneous. But if you look back in your life, it's been a gradual dawning that you've come to an understanding of who Jesus is. Incredible, incredible sign here with a lot more that I wish I had time to, to go into there. But anyway, moving on. 
The result is the man believes the Pharisees do not. The seventh sign in the book is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Um, Jesus has already said in another place in Luke chapter 16, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. One of the incredible things that happens in John or in the Gospels is that the soldiers, when the, the tomb is open, the soldiers fall down on their faces like dead men. They go into the city, they report this happened, this being in white descended, the stone was removed, we fell down like dead men so we couldn't respond and do anything. He walked out of it. And they said, oh, don't tell people that. I mean, that could cause all kinds of problems. You imagine what people might believe. Take a little bit of money, you know, go get drunk, enjoy yourself, and we'll protect you if the authorities ever wonder what happened to the body in the tomb. And so unbelief is sealed. The signs over and over again, and the hardness of heart gets greater and greater and greater. It doesn't matter what is done. And the raising of Lazarus is really that. And it's a challenge on many, many levels. It's a challenge when Jesus sits down with the disciples and he's in this place and he's left because they were going to stone him. And someone comes and says, he whom you love is ill. Jesus goes, eh, I'm not going. You know, the disciples go, we know why you're not going. We don't want to go back there either. You're going to get us killed. That isn't why Jesus isn't going. Jesus isn't going because he wants Lazarus to be dead, 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 dead before he gets back. Because raising the, the baby at Nain wasn't enough, or the boy at Nain wasn't enough. Raising up Tabitha, Talitha, wasn't enough. Those were instant deaths. And, well, perhaps they just fainted. Perhaps they're just in a deep coma, and we couldn't tell. Four days is four days. By this time, Lord, he stinketh. So Jesus has to disillusion these guys. He tells them ahead of time, he's dead. We're going back to raise the dead man. And so that prepares the whole thing. Jesus proclaims himself the resurrection and the life. Then he puts life into a dead man. He, um, you know, asks Mary and Martha, where's your faith? You have said you believe I'm the Messiah. I am the way that you are the resurrection and the life. If any man believes in me, though he dies, yet will he live. Do you believe this? What was Martha's response? Yeah, in the resurrection. In the resurrection, at the last day. And by that, she's really saying, but my need is now. My brother's a young man. This isn't right, you know? And she's, she's doing that, but that's where her faith is. She does believe that Jesus is going to raise men at the end of time. Mary believes the same thing. Jesus goes to the tomb, has him remove the stone against all their objection, calls forth Lazarus. Can you imagine what that looked like? Can you imagine this stone moved away, the yawning, cold blackness coming out of that tomb, Jesus standing in front of it, and he says in a loud voice so that everybody could hear, Lazarus, come forth. And then you hear something coming out of that cave. Because he was bound. <laughs> In obedience, he's coming out. 
And the people are going, what in the world has happened here? And Jesus makes the parallel that this is my role. I am the one who raised all men at the end of time. And it's my voice who will call men out. Now is the hour of belief. Didn't I say to you, Mary, didn't I say to you, Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And they believed and they saw. Oh, what an incredible thing. But did everybody believe? Would you have believed if you'd have been there? I like to think I would have, but you know, I know my own heart. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. If God hadn't been at work, no, I wouldn't have believed. I'd have gone back and told the Jews what had happened. If I was one of the Jews, I would have done what they did. I would have said, what are we going to do with this man? He's performing many signs. And one of them says, basically, we're going to kill him. That's the solution to this one. We're going to kill him. And that all fits into God's plan. It's just an incredible sign, but it doesn't matter what the signs are. I used to wish I had an Avenger cube. You know, you've seen those Evangelic cubes where you can open them up and this way and it shows uh, you know, different pictures of the gospel and you can explain the gospel. I wanted one that was a little different. I wanted to unscrew the top and you looked at it and went, and you can see the fires of hell. And I go, that's the destiny of people who don't believe. Cap it back. And I figured I'd be an incredible evangelist if I had one of these. But people won't believe. They won't believe. It doesn't matter what you say or how well you say it. You still must say it really well. You still must present it really well, because that's not ultimately your decision. But it's not going to be because you are persuasive. If they come to Christ at all, It'll be because you are faithful. And that's the truth of the gospel. God has to be at work. He regenerates lost, sinful souls. Questions, comments, thoughts on any of the signs? Well, didn't they also, not only want to kill Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus because yeah. they were believing because yeah. of Lazarus too. So. Yeah. It's just amazing. And we don't know, again, belief is a nebulous term in John. For some, it really does mean full faith. I think that's what Mary and Martha were expressing. But for some, it just means, I, I believe what I've seen. I, I'm not sure it's saving faith yet. That's to be determined, you know, in those individual cases. But a few days later, crucify him, crucify him, you know. We will not have this man to rule over us. Okay. So that's the signs. And that... John finishes his presentation. It's my belief that John had written that, and that was the, really the gospel. And then John thought, having seen what was written in Matthew and Mark and Luke, no one talked about that last night. No one talked about what Christ did. And so later on, at some point, he, he added that in. And we get a glimpse of Jesus in the upper room. And the upper room discourse is chapter 13, verse 1 through 18, 11. And it's, it encompasses all the way into the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, what we do is we go an expanse from the beginning of time, because we've got John 1.1, which is, associates back to Genesis 1.1, all the way up to um, this last night when Jesus is with his disciples. And so we've got all of that covered in the first 12 uh, chapters. 
Then in chapter 13, we condense everything down to the last hours of Jesus's life. And we get an intimate portrayal of Jesus with his disciples. I'm going to, have to go through just a little bit of this very briefly and then try to tell you some of the main points in it so we can finish this, this whole thing up. But um, let's read chapter 13, verses 2 through 11. Christy, do you have that there? During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am do what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who, is ba who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, um, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said uh, not all. That was why he said not all, all of you are clean. Okay, great. Uh, a number of things that happen here. We have the humility of God. The humility of God not only to become a man and dwell among us, to be born in a poor household, to go through all the rigors of that, but uh, one who has then and gathered really the world to himself. I mean, five, 10 to 20,000 people following him as he went out and fed the 5,000, all those things. He's doing all this, and here he is with every right to claim some kind of position as master, even calling himself that, but willing to take the position of the lowest servant to humble himself. I mean. That's one thing when I was in the Muslim world, they could not understand. They could not understand the humility of Christ in any way. That's why they say he could not have been killed. He could not have, God would not have allowed that to happen. A great prophet like that could not have had that kind of a fate and so forth. But they can understand the humility of God to come seeking man. Man has to seek God through the rigors of fasting and all those other things. And so we see that. We also see an interesting thing here. At this point, Simon Peter is a believer. He's clean. Jesus declares that. But he's partially dirty. We're going to see that in his betrayal or his uh, denial of Christ and so forth. You and I need to take a lesson from that. We constantly need to be cleansed. We need to constantly live in an a, a attitude of repentance Awareness of our sinfulness, awareness of our, our <coughs> sinful propensities. I think it was C Charles Spurgeon who once said, if there is something done among men, a sin committed, a heinous crime, and you find yourself surprised at that, shocked that men could do that to one another, you have not plumbed the depths of your own sinfulness. Mm -hmm. 
potentially we have to realize there is no sin that we could not commit. We often think of ourselves as better than that. You're looking at me up here, and I've been a pastor, and I've been a missionary. When I was 12 years old, well, no, I was a little older than that, I was 14, I found out my stepfather had been molesting my sister. When I found out what had happened, after a short conversation with my sister, I planned to kill him. And I had it all worked out. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I walked out into the high school parking lot. I'm a pagan. I'm a total unbeliever. I don't have any Christian background. Leaning against my car was a man who was my father's, my best friend's father. He was a doctor in town. He'd examined my sister. He looked at me as I came, and I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I know you. I know what you're going to do. Would you give me two hours, and then you do whatever you think's best. But would you give me two hours before you do this? And he saved my life. Wow. I would have killed him. I'm sorry. But I know the depths of my own sinfulness. I know who I was before Christ. And that's the only benefit, only benefit of being raised as a pagan is you can look back and say, that's you. You are just like that. When Satan comes now and he accuses me of something and I am guilty like anyone else, I say in my head, you are right. That is who I am apart from Christ. But in Christ, I am no longer that, that person. Amen. I am sorry. Um, it's okay. Don't be sorry. Thank you for sharing. Anyway, we see the humility. We see this stuff. What I want you to see in verse 10 and 11 is a final... Uh, one of the final appeals to Judas Iscariot. One of the men whose feet Jesus washed was Judas. Can you imagine Jesus washing your feet, explaining what he has explained to Peter, not all of you are clean, and looking at your eyes. And you know what you've planned, because verse 2 says, Satan had already put it into his heart to betray Jesus. He had it all planned. He knew what he was going to do. And yet here is Jesus giving him opportunity. As we go through this discourse a little bit further into the chapter, he is sitting in the seat of honor at the right hand of Christ. It's to him Jesus offers the morsel. Living in the Middle East, I would go to a man's house. This happened to me on a couple of occasions. I'm sitting at the meal, and... Um, what do you do when you go to somebody's house? They, they put food on your plate, and they put more than you could ever want to eat because they have to be generous, and they've, they've filled your plate up, and you have eaten that. And I'm in a poor person's house, and I know in my mind what this has cost them to have my wife and I over there. But I'm the honored guest. And so the man takes another plate, and brings it in and fills it just like the one that I'd already eaten and places it in front of me and says, eat. And I go, I can't, I, I'm full. You know what he does? He grabs my chin 
reaches over and takes a choice piece of meat, opens my mouth, and sticks the meat in there. And what he's doing is he's saying, you are my guest. I want you to have the very best of what I have. And, and it's a place of honor. When Jesus offers this morsel to Judas, he is giving him great honor. Now, we know what's going on because we've read behind the scenes. But Judas, I believe, refuses the morsel. He knows what's implied in this. And he gets up, and Satan fills him at that moment, and Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. And he goes out, and it was night, the symbolism. And what we see there is the betrayal is set in place, but right up to the very end, Jesus is begging this sinner to come in, to come to faith, to not do what he's going to do. You and I know people that have died apart from Christ. Every one of them has had the same appeal from Christ throughout their life, over and over and over again. They have hardened their hearts. They've decided no. They've gotten up from the table a blessing, and they've gone out into the night. And that is all she wrote. A sad situation, but that, that is not surprising. And, and we see the humility of our God. Another place we see it is that none of the disciples had any clue what Judas was going to do. Because Jesus had never treated them in a way that would make them suspect that he was going to be the betrayer. So, you know, all the way through this whole dialogue, just to sum up what's happening here, from here on there are two or three themes that are repeated over and over and over again. One of those is, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. Belief in John's gospel is always tied to action, Action is shown in belief, and belief, action, the action there is to keep the commandments of Christ. Over and over again, he repeats the same commandment to them. Love one another. If you love one another, the world will know you're my disciples. If you love one another, you will prove to be my children. When we look at the body of Christ, we are very individualistic in America here. But it is the love of the brethren shown to the best of our ability. I got a call this last week. Somebody needed a, somebody to come over to the house to watch their children. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't respond. I got it too late. It was already too late to even help them out. But I thought to myself, would I have responded anyway? Would I have gone to do that? And, you know, the conclusion I came up to is that I would have probably tried to find a way out of it. <laughs> I, I hate to say that, but the love of the brethren is something I've really got to grow in. So I'm willing to be sacrificial on, on behalf of, of the body. But if we'll do that, if we'll truly love one another in this congregation, we will show the world we are disciples of Christ. And that is repeated over and over again. Why does Jesus reiterate that commandment above all the others that he might give us? Why does he reiterate that one over and over and over again? What do you think? If you love me, keep my commandments? Yeah. If you love me, 
keep my commandments by loving the brethren. Why does he, why does he emphasize that? Any ideas? One, one reason, it's dying to self. Good. Uh, demonstrating the same kind of character he had by giving his life for others. Yeah. We are to emulate that. As you've seen, as what he said, the last yeah. as you see that I served you, you are to serve others. Exactly. And there isn't any of the services too lowly. Also, it's against our human nature to do that. So if we are demonstrating that it's obviously Christ in us that is allowing us to do it. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's another piece to it, too. And I think it's this. We get under pressure. Things get tough for us. We become self-centered. When we become self-centered, we don't have time for other people. We don't care about other people. And that divides and destroys the body. These guys are going to be in trouble. How easy it would have been to gather in that room after uh, Christ was buried and so forth and say, you betrayed him. You know, Judas betrayed him. Do you ever see recrimination for Judas in any of the Gospels? Amazing, isn't it? Do you know why? I believe it's because they looked at themselves and said, I would have done the same thing. I could have done it. I thought about leaving them. I thought about how to, how to make a little money off the deal, you know? They, they could have said to Peter, you denied him. You bozo, how could you do that? You're the one that stood up and said you'd die for him, you know? And he knew that we could get at each other in our distress. And Jesus is basically warning us against that. But they all did deny because they all fled. Everybody fled. I know, they did. All so, John. All it, John. Just different, different kind of betrayal. Yeah. Well, I got five minutes left, um, and uh, there's just, uh, there's so much more here. John chapter 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. The one thing that we get out of that over and over again is the fact that he is praying for us. For you and I, he is our intercessor at the right hand of God right now, praying for us. His care for us is never left. And that's the other theme of the, the upper room discourse is that I'm going to be with you. I'm leaving, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. There will never be a moment that I am not aware of all that's going on in your life. Will you trust me? despite how difficult it is. Will you trust me with whatever the circumstances are and believe that I am in the midst of it all, that I do know what's going on down here in your life? And then in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, it talks about the cup. That's the garden there. Peter takes out his sword, hacks off the high priest's servant's ear, and does all this stuff. And Peter says, put up your sword. This is the cup the Father's given me. Should I not drink it? Should I drink to the bottom? He drank all of the wrath of God on you and I's behalf. And that's what that cup was filled with. It was his obedience to the Father, trusting him to go to the cross and die for the glory yet set before him, as Hebrews talks about. Chapter 18 through 19 is a betrayal and arrest. Um, the story of Pilate is heartwarming and also incredibly sad. Mm -hmm. Pilate knows what's right to do. His culture tells him what's right to do. 
He doesn't do it. He does it for expedience sake. Historically, we know Pilate was in trouble. He'd already come in, taken the treasure box out of the temple and financed an aqueduct. He created riots for bringing the standards of Rome into the city. He was afraid of another riot and he gave in to the Jews, said, what does it matter? Kill this Jew or that Jew. He tried to get off the hook. And what I'm going to say to you is when we're at Judgment Day, the whole world, they're going to, we're going to be judged by what we did with Christ. But those who don't know him, the first question that's going to be asked is, here's your standard. Here's what you said you thought was right. Let's see how well you did living your life according to the standard you set. Pilate knew what was right. He was not a believer. Jesus gave him a chance. So you're a king? Who told you about this? Did someone else tell you about me? Or is that from your own thought? It's got to work in your heart. And Pilate goes, you know, that, that ended up in the what is truth, you know. Am I a Jew? Pilate hardened his heart, but Jesus was extending to him also an offer if the spirit was at work there. And we see that all the way through. Finally on the cross, two last acts of Christ. One extends salvation to a man who had been berating him. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. The other looking out, woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. Took care of a last obligation. It's not in John's gospel, but the result was a centurion who'd killed many men, who'd seen many die, never had seen a man die with that nobility, who said, surely this man's the son of God. All the way through the Gospels, we see Jesus at work. The last chapter, John chapter 21, a little bit of cleaning up. I think John added that after all the stuff had been done and said he was a very old man. Rumors had gone around that John couldn't be killed. They tried to boil him in oil and everything else, and finally they sent him to Patmos and said, at least we can get him out of, the, out of where he has any influence. And uh, rumors had gone around John was going to stay until Jesus came back. And John puts that rumor to death. He said, if I want him to stay until I return, what is that to you, talking to Peter? And so he took care of the last thing. I'm not your hope. Get your eyes back on God. Don't look at me. I'm just flesh and blood. The other thing that we see is the restoration of Peter. And the interesting thing about the restoration of Peter was the denial was there three times. Jesus didn't just set it aside. He made Peter own up to it. This is why confession on our parts is really healthy. Face what you are. Face it before the Lord. Correct it before the Lord. You got a problem with somebody else and you've sinned against them. Correct it in front of them. Go and take care of it. Get it done. Be restored fully to fellowship. Feed my sheep. Tend my lamb. Feed my sheep. I'm making you a shepherd again. I'm restoring you to a place of trust and honor. But first you have to acknowledge your sin. Great what the Lord does to us. So don't feel bad when your conscience pricks you. Respond to it if it's really godly, a godly motivation. Okay, that's the Gospel of John in a few million words. <laughs> Thank you all for your patience. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this chance to look at the Gospel of John. 
it's an inadequate presentation. There's just so much grace here, so much that we could go into, so much detail. And that's why pastors spend years preaching through this book to help us know the rich treasure that's here. Would you please spark in us the desire, the, the desire to know this, the desire to know you through John's eyes and what he presents here, as you have sparked that desire for us to know you through the other Gospels and will again through the writings ahead. Thanks for our time. Thanks for your blessing upon us and being with us. We praise you for your love for us exhibited through Christ. Amen. Amen.